Welcome to the Real Life Buyer Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear interviews with business owners, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, authors, and technical specialists in their field. These professionals will hasten your development, accelerate your career, and broaden your business know-how. Now, introducing your host, Dave Barr, interviewing with a purchasing twist. Hello, and welcome to the Real Life Buyer. This week, I am delighted to interview local Eastbourne businessman, entrepreneur, speaker, and Brighton and Hobarvian football club supporter, Michael Ogilvie. Michael is a chartered accountant, often referred to as the profit man or profit coach, is an owner of the successful accountancy business X5 Accountants, together with a profit improvement business and a wealth improvement business. Michael works with businesses who want to grow their sales, increase their effectiveness, and of course, increase their profits. Michael is also the author of Turnover Feeds Your Ego, but only profits can feed your family. In this episode, I seek to dive into the profit man's expertise and tease out some learned revelations on how you can grow your profits and build a highly successful business. So without further ado, I welcome Michael onto the podcast. Hi, Michael. Hi, lovely to be here. Looking forward to uh, sharing some tried and tested ideas with you. Lovely. So let's, where, where, well, where do we start? Firstly, thanks for joining us on the show. I know you're an extremely busy gentleman. Perhaps you could share with the audience some of your background and the circumstances that led you to create your businesses and become a celebrated speaker and author. Okay. Ironically, I'm meant to be in Iran today. Um, so, uh, but uh, we had to pull out of that uh, because of the political ramifications. So I was meant to be speaking at a sales conference. So originally, I am by training an accountant, um, but I was one of those accountants that was bored by being an accountant. So I can understand why people find it boring to talk to accountants. So when I introduce myself, I say, I help people uh, make more profit and pay less tax. And uh, hopefully gets the answer, how do you do that? Oh, do let me tell you. So uh, (laughs) because like it or not, quite often things start in America. And so you go and find out what's happening there, what what the more uh, enlightened advisors, business advisors were doing out there those who were accountants who were also business advisors. And I met with a few like-minded individuals and we ended up being part of a found, founding a an organization called the Institute of Profit Advisors. Or I think it was the Association of Profit Advisors over here because we have stricter rules about the Institute. But we mixed up with some Americans who had an Institute of Profit Advisors. And from there, basically, the rest is history because I, I've kept tagging along, opening my minds to new ideas, um, reading, listening, speaking, and uh, your your brain is a sponge. You can never stop learning. And now with AI, well, I just can't wait for the next chapter in my life. Fabulous. That sounds really great. And I love the intro that you've crafted to get people on board. So that's uh, really good, really good. So you've obviously honed your skills over some time now with many clients and you've developed lots of relationships, engaged in lots of uh, projects, no doubt. So in order to help them grow, uh, no doubt you have a process, you have some key steps that are needed to take your clients from where they are today, to establish where they are, understand where they are, and of course, where they wish to be. So can you talk us through the kind of steps, that the sort of the journey that you take your clients through to get them to where they want to be? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's nothing clever about it. I mean, it's, um, it's really quite uh, obvious when I say it, but it's amazing how few people know why they're doing what they're doing. And so the first thing I do is to tell me 
tell me um, what you're doing and why you're doing it and uh, where does it end? What, what does successful look like? So I'm trying to understand whether they've inherited the business, whether they started the business because they've got a calling, a passion for a particular skill or topic, or what, what, what is the background? Because there has to be an end. And I remember talking at a conference down in the West Country and the hotel owner came up to me having listened in the back to me talking. And he said, listening to you talking, I just suddenly thought about myself. I have no idea why I'm doing this because I took it, took it over from my uh, family and I've just carried on doing it and I never, never thought why I'm doing it. It just seemed to be something I had to do. So um, I've taken away from listening to you. Now there has to be some sort of purpose in life. And so I've got to... Uh, have some some sort of end game, even if I change my mind along the way. And I think that's the, I was speaking at a conference in uh, Mauritius, and uh, that was really quite interesting. I was there with 14 MBAs, and I haven't got an MBA, and they were all around the table. And I thought, why on earth do they want to listen to me? And the, the, sorry, the conference was actually turned because they'd, they'd had a funeral when, when I was in the, on the flight. I, was, I landed and was told, oh, the conference has been cancelled, but you're going to attend the board meeting tomorrow uh, because the chairman's going to have to attend a funeral. And so uh, I was interested. I thought, well, what on earth do I talk about? I had no idea. And I and uh, I went there. I said, well, what would you like me to talk about? And they said, just your usual stuff. And uh, it wasn't quite as uh, nice as that. It was <laughs> a different <laughs> word they use. But so I said, well, OK. Um, so I just start, I'll start with uh, that thing. I said, tell me, how many of you were here when this business started? And this was a multinational business, international, in terms of the different types. It had building, it had clothing, it had sugarcane, uh, textiles, all sorts of different business, a real conglomerate. And uh, so uh, very successful. And this, uh, these people were, none of them were looking, they were looking at each other and said, well, of course, none of us were here at the beginning. And I said, well, do you know why the business was uh, formed? Do you know why you're doing what you're doing? Do your team know why you're doing what you're doing? Have you ever discussed it with them? Is there any sort of uh, purpose in what you're doing? And they were all sort of scribbling and I thought, I've, I've hit a vein here. <laughs> and it's so true because, you know, people just end up doing and they just think, well, we're there to increase profits. Well, okay, that, that is one goal. But um, there's more, more and more in, in today's life. There's um, far deeper reasons to be, and so there, there might be charitable reasons. There, whatever there is, you know, there's ethical reasons. Whatever there is, uh, there's uh, people. We've got to try and make sure we drill down, and we've got to make sure we share it with our team. So when I'm talking to um, any business owners, I need to get to understand the framework within which they operate and which their mind works. So I can then say, well, how can I make a difference to them? That's really interesting because one would assume, being from from your background, the first thing you want to do almost is pour over the numbers, yeah, and, and see where they are. So it's great that you're trying to understand, you know, the principles behind the culture behind the business and how you can perhaps change behaviours and mindset. You know, what impact that has on the business as well. Yes, I I learned quite early on because I always thought it was about scoreboard. I remember listening to various speakers and they say, you know, it's the all the professional athletes they're always looking at the scoreboard. And uh, but after a while, you begin to realise actually the scoreboard is the end is the outcome. It's the way it's shown, but it's not necessarily the end game. So you have to actually do things right to be able to get on the scoreboard and get the scoreboard improving. And so when the, uh, when I focused on that side to actually understand what's going to help keep the scoreboard ticking over, then it became far more relevant. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, business is becoming highly complex, more complex. Obviously, at the moment, there's lots of challenges, shall we say, for businesses. And I would say certainly the, from the complexity 
a lot of businesses are going down, drilling down into the data, looking at lots and lots of KPIs and, uh, you know, trying to establish what are the things to follow, to measure, to check, you're trying to address. I'm wondering whether, though, sometimes we get lost in the data, lost in the numbers, and we should step back and look at the simple things, the overlooked ideas that can significantly impact a company's sales, perhaps we mentioned their effectiveness, their cost controls. Just thinking about your clients, how do you help them to go through this kind of data? How do you help them to adopt a profit culture, as you refer to it as, for long-term growth and profitability? Yeah, it is an interesting one because uh, I I always try and give everybody credit and assume that when it comes to managing overheads, most businesses are going to run pretty lean. Um, some people are better at it than others. So what I tend to look at is look at their process in terms of looking at the stuff that doesn't get measured. And I call them profit robbers. And the profit robbers, when... If I uh, talk at a conference, quite often one of the things I'll do is I'll get money out of my pocket and uh, I'll throw it on the um, floor. And I'll say, you know, every business I go into, I get to the car park and I'll see a £50 note in the car park. I get into reception and I'll see a couple of £20 notes. I get into the uh, meeting room and there's um, a £5 note there. And I go into, excuse myself, and go into the loo and I find some more money in there. And I asked the people, and I said, well, so what? What do you have to, what has to happen for that money to be picked up? And uh, they said, well, you eventually, they said, well, you've got to see it. And I said, yes. So what has to happen before you can see it? And after a long while, different ideas come up, you've got to care. So so you've got, so I sort of come up and say, well, if you want people to uh, enjoy a game where if they pick up a £50 note, they can actually share some of it with you, then they're going to be far more interested. And suddenly you'll find they'll tell you about the £20 note around the corner. And so it's it's what, what I try to do is explain these are examples of waste. And it's not £50 notes and £10 notes and £20 notes are just a way of trying to explain because they're sort of things that not get measured in the profit and loss account. They're the same poor communication, poor listening, advertising, where people will spend the money and have got no idea and it's you know the old adage of 50% of it works I don't know which 50% works and which doesn't work but so so much of uh, advertising I just see PR it's all it's an ego trip and I see so much money wasted on uh, stuff that's gloss that uh, even on websites these days you think well what are you trying to achieve and it really so there's some awareness and so that's great and I think with social media people knock social media but it does cut to the quick now because uh, people are so time short that they want to be engaged with quickly and so they want to make the decision about whether something's interesting to them and so people are having to face up to it but i still see clients wasting money all over the show uh, let alone let alone in, in terms of employment and uh, traditional overheads yeah and quite often that you find that people walk around with their eyes shut. They get used to seeing things so frequently, it becomes invisible. Yeah. It needs something like you to trigger the eyes wide open scenario. Yeah, the definition of a boss, um, the definition of a boss is somebody who picks up the crisp packet on the way into the end because other people walk past it and they'll say, well, I didn't put it there. And so they don't pick it up. And it's it's that, do you have to, have to find a way of making people care about what people um, are going to see when they look at it, the stain in the corner of the room, whatever it is, um, you, people have got to care to actually do something about it. It's interesting your 
your point about overhead. It's quite often I see two different types of business. You've got one business that's quite small. They're they're controlling every single penny, but being very methodical and careful. Almost the point though, where by spending some of that money, they would release the time and opportunity to build more money. So that's one side of things. And flipping over to another side, you'll see businesses that are growing very quickly. And we've seen this in the social media world. They're growing very quickly. They hire, hire, hire because they need more people. And before you know it, they've overhired and they're having to lose people again. Yep. So can you, can you mention about the overhead? How do you keep a sensible control on the overheads and the hiring and the, and the firing side of things? You know, when you're trying to deal with great profits or very difficult profits in situations. Yes, I mean, I, I think, again, if you are starting with the end in mind, you've got to work out right, what do you need to earn to be successful? What do you need to earn to live? And one of the things for small business, I always say the first, the person that should always get paid first is the owner. And in reality, normally the person who gets paid last is the owner because they um, they will end up saying, well, we'll be the um, the valve in the system. And so we'll go without. But what that means is that they're not asking the right questions of their business. So I always say it's really important that the owner should get paid first. And of course, members of staff look at me you know, when I'm talking about it and say, well, why is that? You know, I say, well, it's because you have to ask the right uh, questions. And so the biggest mistake most people make is they don't charge enough. They don't value themselves properly. And so every overhead, every penny is a prisoner. But like you quite rightly say, if you spend too little in overheads, you don't really have an effective business. So you have to identify what you need to be effective in the first place and then say, what do I need to generate in order to achieve that profit or that um, profit to live or profit to succeed, profit to expand? So whatever the framework that we're talking about, we have to work it backwards. And so plan that way. So many people, are, I look at their, if they are do actually do any forecasts, and so many don't, what they do is look at last year and make an increment. And I thought, well, and they said, well, what do you think? And I said, I've no idea. So what are you trying to achieve? And so if I know what they're trying to achieve, if they're trying to achieve a 50% growth because they want to sell the business in five years' time, then if they've only achieved a 5% growth, it's not good enough. So they're not asking themselves the right questions. And that this, So what I try and do is put some sort of relationship between the overheads and uh, their income and, put, and sort of put, some, put it into perspective. Is that, um, that relationship formulaic? Is it gut feel? How do you assess that balance between growth and profitability and overheads you know is there a sweet spot would you say well i think i think there's a sweet spot in terms of you you know what your overheads your fixed overheads are so you have to identify what your variable overheads are so that those are the ones that uh, can be saved from time to time fixed overheads you can normally do very little about but so the most the most uh, important area to uh, con- uh, concentrate on is the gross profit and the gross profit it is the um, cost of sales, and sometimes a secondary gross profit. So where you have your sort of semi-variable costs in, and this is where I try and get people to understand the the biggest profit robber in any business is uh, normally they say, well, it's the building, it's the premises, or it's the wages. And actually, it's something that's quite often very rarely measured, and it's the uh, discounts that the people will give away because they don't value themselves properly. And so if they were actually working out and saying, well we're selling a widget or selling a service and our our time is worth £200 an hour or £25 an hour, whatever it is it's worth, then they've got to work out whatever they're selling, how many they need to sell to um, achieve the exercise. So that's formulaic in that way. But it's not formulaic in a way and say, well, 
I remember speaking to somebody who uh, just asked themselves the question. They were doing very well doing furniture business, but they were struggling. It was a they were doing well, but it was tough. And he just suddenly said he looked around and he said, "Why am I dealing with second division clients?" And he just changed his uh, changed his question and said, "Right, I, do I believe in the quality of the product that I provide? Do I believe in the quality of the service that I provide? Well, I'm not going to deal with second division clients anymore. I'm going to make sure that I only deal with first division clients and premiership clients." because they're the ones who can afford to pay what I believe I'm worth. And so totally changed his whole emphasis and his whole belief system. And uh, it wasn't uh, before long that he sold out for millions. Very nice too. Lovely. (laughs) Okay. It's interesting you mentioned discounting because that's something you see common. You see on the high street, there are a few high street uh, shops companies who don't at christmas have a you know a great sale and everything else and that's quite um you know prolific there are a few that don't do that i err on the side of don't do that because i think that devalues the product or the service but there we go but yeah very much so i mean i think i totally agree with you i think the brand people underestimate the value of their brand and that so the brand is themselves when they're a small business and if they don't value themselves highly enough then um, they they're always prepared to give away their time uh, for too little or give away their product for too little and so and so one of the biggest jobs i have is to make people believe in themselves and say look sometimes you're better off having quality of life having um, less time and you might earn less but you'll be able to um, actually enjoy it whereas you give away stuff but uh, you'll have a lot more business but you won't have time to enjoy it so you've got to get some sort of uh, some sort of balance in your life yeah, yeah, it is is difficult because me as a as an individual, if I've just been and purchased something and then find out a week later that that's now on sale, twenty percent off, or whatever, yeah, I feel quite aggrieved by by that. Clearly, they don't believe their their product is worth its salt, so to speak. They're yeah. happy to throw some of that profit away, and in myself, I'm saying, hold on a minute, that I had to work very hard for that money. You know, you you're you're devaluing your product. You're looking at your clients as 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 somebody that okay uh you once i've got your money i'm not worried about you anymore yep so yeah, i find that a bit of a, a kind of a downward spiral as well in the respect that you have to work a lot harder for less money so you know you have I, to... I agree entirely dave it's it's almost manipulative and i think i always say to people um discount is a swear word so you never ever offer a discount by all means offer a special price offer a launch incentive if maybe a quantity incentive, but there's it's never called a discount because once you give a discount, you always have to give a discount. So if somebody's had a discount from you once, they're going to come back and say, can I have my usual discount? And what what answer can you give as to, because you've given it once, so people have already discounted your brand. And so that's why it's, it's no surprise that quality brands never have sales. They'll, they'd rather throw away and destroy their stock that's not moving than give it away in a sale. So, so I always just say, use if you're trying to uh, build a business, then you're going to buy into the market. So you're going to give a volume discount. So you're going to that's going to be incentive, but it's not a discount. It's going to be a volume incentive. So you have to choose your language and the way you market the stuff right, so that uh, people understand the value of your brand. I guess in a lot of people's heads, having to increase prices without damaging the relationships can be quite tricky particularly if they've had a history, you just said, of discounting. So have you come across that with some clients? Have you helped them to actually increase their prices now 
but still retain those valuable relationships with their customers? That is really difficult. And so, um, and yes, I have. And it's both in the service sector and the um, commodity sector, for want of a better word, because I always remember talking to an electrics, uh, is it electrics? Yes, it was in terms of there were fire alarms, smoke alarms. And I was talking to that and that sales director said, we're a commodity. We can't really put our prices up. Then was boasting how he always got better deals. And I said, hang on, you've just said... uh, that you're a commodity. So how can you get a better deal than some of your salespeople? Well, because I I will do talk in terms of delivery times. I'll talk in terms of holding stock back. Or I'll um, I'll talk in terms of quality. So you get a better better deal because you actually realise there's more to it than just price. But you're what you're saying. You're already saying to your team actually people only buy on price. But you've actually proven that you can sell by putting a service wrapper around your product and it's it's just a belief system and uh, it's astonishing how this sales director when i actually challenged him on it just said i'm so embarrassed because i just hadn't realized what i was doing interesting yeah now let's just look at a different element to the, the books and let's talk about cost control and particularly about supplier management those relationships you have with your suppliers and how you perhaps could leave money on the table or throw things away do you see cost control, poor supplier management as an area often where there's money left behind? Is is it a significant cause for concern in many different types of business? In the bigger businesses, I think so. But again, I'm also, I'm also conscious that um, even more so in this day and age, it's about relationships. Because if you gain, if you just treat people, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes how rude and objectionable people can be in dealing with suppliers. And, and it's everything is about... Uh, the price and I said no you you have to be able to share so in terms I mean I'm not saying it's a partnership but it's a sort of partnership it's an understanding the supplier needs to understand what you're trying to achieve so if you're having to drop your prices you're looking to the supplier to share some of the pain and say what can they do to help you and if you can actually have that sort of relationship you've got a chance to uh, work together because if but if they are literally providing a commodity there's nothing good about what they offer, then that what they're saying is just judge us on the price. And uh, and I always say if people if come to you on price, they'll leave you on price as well, because that's exactly the way you treat your suppliers. So you've got to be so careful to get this value equation right. Yeah, it becomes a transaction, yes. isn't it, a, a opposed to anything else. And so you're only as good as your order you place today. And will they go beyond uh, Pass the extra mile? Will they try and get something to you quicker if you you'll take every penny out of the hand, so to speak? Yes. Basically, they won't, will they? They'll, you know, take it or leave it. Will become the situation. Whereas if you work together, and as you say, you both share the pain, but you also share the the positives. So as your business grows, their business grows. You become there's a kind of loyalty between the two of you. As long as it's uh, it's a healthy loyalty, shall we say, then everybody benefits from that kind of positive relationship. Absolutely. And I turn that, so I turn that question on the head. So if I say, right, so looking at uh, the client's business, I say, so if you are understanding that you have to have this relationship with your suppliers, then you have to have this relationship with your customers as well. So you've got to look at whatever you are providing, and you have got to find a way where they are not buying you on price. So what is the service wrapper? What is it about you? Is it um, the communication? Is it the promise? Is it the guarantee? 
that you offer, the the warranty, the after-service visit, whatever it is that's the wrapper that comes around with your product or your service that's going to make a difference because people like to deal with people they like. And uh, so, yes, nobody wants to pay anything more than they need to, but that's very rarely. It's I think it's something like number six on the equation when it comes to deciding on a fact. So they, they, first, they want to feel that they're going to be reliable, they're valued, and the fact that um, they themselves are valued in the relationship. And so they always want to deal with people they like. And I think so from our point of view, we've got to make sure that we're known, liked and trust, trusted by the people who are buying from us. Yep. We talked about businesses in the sense of them being, let's say, a manufacturing business and a service business as kind of one. But obviously they are very different businesses. So when you go in to see your clients and they're, the two different types of business. Do you adjust your approach? Is there certain things you would treat very differently when you approach a manufacturing business who's selling products, for example, versus a service? How do you adapt and change to suit the client in front of you? I think what I'm always interested in is find out what their issues are. So, for example, I went into a manufacturer recently, a local manufacturer in Eastbourne, a very successful local manufacturer. And uh, and I said, what, what is it about you that uh, people use you? Because there's all sorts of uh, manufacturers like you. And uh, he said, well, we're certainly not the cheapest, but we're certainly not the most expensive. I think we're probably the most reliable. And so that, to me, is that sums it up. So when they have a system, so if somebody orders, um, this is in this case it was kitchens, um, right. they want, if they want to order a kitchen to be made, They'll give a time scale and they'll guarantee, and it's all highly mechanized, and uh, they will deliver, you know, exactly everything. And we look, I look around the factory, see the systems to make sure nothing gets damaged in transit. All the little small things that matter, the communication systems when they are told that there's two days before you receive your order, um, there's one day before you receive your order. This is who's going to be delivering it. All the little small things that are totally unnecessary what do I call them, uh, critical non-essentials. So they're, they're critical, but they're not essential. But if you don't actually do them, you'll find you're going to lose them to somebody else on price because there's nothing that differentiates you uh, from your competitors. Right. That's great. There's two things that jump out at me there. One is the attention to detail. Okay, so they're going to a very detailed level to think of everything that they could possibly do to give the customer, the second thing, a positive experience. Yeah. I feel like you're in the hands of a trusted provider who knows what they're doing, they're organised, they're effective. They've, you know, they're very clearly have got good controls over all their procedures and processes. And as you say, that is what give people assurance that they are going to get a good quality product on time at a reasonable price, and you can trust these people to deliver. And that's all we want, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with the word experience. So. That's a challenge for all of us. And uh, if I've got time, I could share my pineapple man story with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. So this is a real story. And uh, we, a group of us uh, went to Barbados about, oh, probably about seven years ago. And I've been back uh, several times since. But uh, on the first, on the second night uh, walking along, we were greeted by this guy who, typical beach seller, had his had his satchel on his back and uh, Rastafarian uh, hat, and he just said, "Hi, welcome to Barbados. I think you're new here. Don't think I've seen you around before." 
And uh, he said, look, um, can I warn you, it might be five o'clock in the evening. Uh, he says, I've seen so many people's holidays ruined because you've, um, you think the sun is not hot, but actually people get terribly badly burnt at this time of the evening, even though the sun is relatively mild compared to what it was at the uh, midday. So be very careful. And the other sort of friendly word of advice I'd give you is if you carry on work, walking along the beach, those trees over there, if any of the leaves fall on your bare skin, the sap on there is acidic. And so it could blister you as well. And I just don't want that to ruin your holiday. Didn't try and sell us anything. So one of the girls in our party said to him, so uh, what are you trying to sell? And I said, Elaine, you never ask people what they're trying to sell. That's an encouragement to a salesman. And uh, he said, don't worry, sir. And he just laughed. Madam, I don't sell anything. People buy pineapples from me. And I thought, interesting. I love that reply. So people buy pineapples from me. I don't sell anything. And so uh, one of the other girls said, well, what's your name? Well, my name's Original. So rolling his eyes, I'm the original pineapple man from Barbados. Oh, fantastic. I said, come on, girls, let's not, uh, I didn't, what, what we didn't need is to buy a pineapple. And then uh, we walked and he said, don't worry. He said, I'm sure I'll see you around uh, and be careful there. And great, didn't try and sell us anything. So next day, sure enough, he said, hey, how are you? Hope you didn't get underneath any of those leaves. And uh, one of the other girls said, uh, "What's uh, how much do these pineapples cost? I said, no, never ask a salesman. <laughs> and he said, well, now you've asked $200. So I immediately perked up interest. And I said, $200, what, uh, US dollars? I said, yeah, $200 for a pineapple. Yes, that's right. I said, what, are they made of gold? He said, they're golden, they're delicious, they're a work of art, they're a real experience. Wait till you've tried one. And left it that, and I thought, wow, this is somebody I'm going to learn from. He's obviously quite cute, but he's still not trying to sell anything. And so we bumped into a couple of times. And uh, the first time, sort of the nearest thing he tried to sell was said, well, sell, let me know when you're ready to um, try the experience. So I said, well, we're going to have to play golf for the next two days. How about uh, in three days' time? So we're at the hotel next day. So he said, I'll come and find you. What's 11 o'clock? So he came and found us at 11 o'clock. So, uh, he comes along with his pineapples in his uh, backpack and he gets out a freezer bag and uh, he gets out uh, his pineapple, holds it by the, the spiky bits and starts peeling the pineapple with his sheath knife, which he's pulled out with a flourish and starts singing away. He said, pineapples are great for your chest and they are help you to digest. And I'm <laughs> a poet and I know. And it's just, just coming out with random spiel. It's lovely. And of course, there's a crowd gathering around to see what's going, this guy peeling his pineapple. So when he's got to his bare skin, he cuts out the notches and he gets his uh, clean freezer bag holds the bare flesh so he's not holding it with his bare hands and the flesh swoops off the uh, feathers cuts it into six in the bag and says man these are great with barbados rum so he says i recommend it and of course everybody applauds and he sits down and i suddenly think wow i haven't agreed a price so i said original that was amazing we haven't agreed a price he said mike don't talk about money like this. This is embarrassing talking about money. I've come to think of you as a friend. Mm. I said, that's great, Original. I've come to think of you as a friend. He said, let's call it 100, shall we? I said, oh, come on, Original. Let's call it 20. So I gave him a $20 note. And when I always ask at conferences, I said, so do you think I was done? So I willingly gave this man a $20 note. The women say, no, of course not. You really mean. The men say, yes, you were done. This <laughs> quite incredible. So uh, he took this $20 note and with a twinkle in his eye, shook my hand and said, Mike, nice doing business with you. And I thought, this guy is so clever. 
And so I asked him and I said to him, does anybody ever pay you $200? He said, yeah. And I said, what, Americans? Yes. And English? Oh, no, no, you're far too tight. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. What a showman. Yeah, the learning point, which I always share with people, is he never once uh, tried to sell us anything. He invited us to buy from him. And so what he did was made dealing with him an experience that we enjoyed. And they all went in sales. People will remember the experience far longer than the product they or service they've ever bought from you. They'll remember you and the experience you've given them and they will recommend it. So I, I now, as a result of this, I've been back and I've met him a couple of times since and he's and I bought paid, paid him another two twenty dollars uh, for this thing. And it, it's great. He's uh, he's quite a celebrity about it. And now I talk about him all around the world. And so and I always say, if you want people to talk about you, you have to give them something to talk about. And that's the easiest way of creating value is making sure that you give an experience of coming back to the kitchen manufacturer, all these little critical non-essentials. It makes it an experience that allows people to charge a price. So here's a man who get, who's um, sending something. Let's say you um, will charge a dollar or 50 cents, and he's getting $20 willingly from me because I've enjoyed the experience of dealing with him. I also felt guilty where he's told me it's $200 and then said, look, you're a friend, I'll call it $100. And so he's actually got my mind focused on the $200 and the paradigm shift down to $100. And I'm saying, gosh, I'm really mean. I'm only giving him $20. But actually, I'm giving you a fantastic deal. Yeah. And this is the point. So, and I said, so, so business has got to think, what's their pineapple? And there's loads of examples that we can do. I mean, traveling around the world, we're privileged. We see, we see loads of examples of how different people do things from the fluffy towel that's turned into a shape of an animal when you get into a hotel. The, the way they do the goodies, the way they, I mean, uh, there's, there's so many stories. I mean, I went to Calgary uh, once. I did, have we got time? I've got a bit of time. The Calgary. Yeah, sure. Was I went to the Sheraton Suites in uh, still there back and visited it. And I got in. They uh, sent a taxi um, to pick me up from the airport. And as I came in uh, the entrance, and it was quite a short thing, they looked up from their reception desk and just smiled and said, Mr. Ogilvie. And I thought, how do they know? Of course, then I realized they'd actually sent the taxi. And the taxi probably sent them a message that I was arriving. And so rather than me going to the desk, they came to me. And uh, I've had a similar experience now um, in Borneo, where they'll come to you and you sit you down, you get to, you get your drink, cold drink given or whatever it is. But in this case, they the receptionist took me to my room, and in the room there was a boot made out of cho- a cowboy boot made out of chocolate. And I I looked at this cowboy boot and I said, is this real chocolate that I can eat? So it certainly is, sir. And uh, she said, look, um, you unpack and I'll come back to you in 20 minutes and I'll explain about the hotel and I'll explain about Calgary, if you like. Well, in five minutes, I'd actually eaten that chocolate boot down to its sole. And so that all that was left (laughs) then. And I thought, I can't let her see that I've eaten all this chocolate. And so I uh, went and met her and found her. That evening I came back and I was so embarrassed because my soul had gone and it had been replaced by a cowboy hat made out of chocolate full of chocolate-covered strawberries. And it was just astonishing. They turned down, they turned down the bed and they bet, the mat beside the bed had turned into a wee, willing, wee willy winky mat. <laughs> and it's just there were loads of, loads of different examples. And again, I, I sort of talked to them about this and they had a system that I was allowed to talk about but not allowed to write about because it was uh, their, their system that they use. And so I can't remember what the system was called, but uh, the first one began with R. First letter was R. 
and it was to recognize the person as they come up to reception. And it, it's the systematic approach. And so sometimes I call it sucking up. So systemized, unexpected contact, unexpected contact. So where you actually create contact that's unexpected, but nobody needs to know it's systemized. So you have a way of uh, dealing with it. And all of this creates an experience that you talk about and to value. So I'll go back to the Sheraton Suites. I never check to see if there's a cheaper hotel because I feel as though they they treated me so well. I'm, I've got a loyalty towards them. So twice I've been there. That the second time I didn't have a cowboy hat um, and, the, and the lady who did it, she'd gone. But they... They, they're sort of like part of my Calgary means Sheraton Suites. And I think this when in business, this is what it's all about. We focus so much on costs when we should be focusing more on value. Oh, so, some fantastic stories. And as you say, there's so many lessons wrapped up in both of those stories, really. You say it's a systemized approach, but it's also tailored and personalized to you. So you feel it's for you. Yes. It's something special. Absolutely. And it, as you say, it sets them apart from every other hotel that, you know, Okay, they may take you to the room and offer to show you where the lights are, but that's usually about it, isn't normally. But this is a whole new level, isn't it? Absolutely, Absolutely. superb. And I think with artificial intelligence, I think personalization now is going to become so widespread in terms of where there's going to be so many different ways of uh, being able to personalize, uh, I know, even personalize your grapefruit in uh, your breakfast table or something. There's going to be so many different ways that. Uh, at the moment, just be too much hard work to try and do it. But now you're going to find the machines are going to be able to do it. Uh, they'll need a bit of prompting by people with creative minds. But they once they've actually had examples given to them, they'll come up with ideas themselves. I'm um, brilliant you touched on that because that was going to be my kind of last question for you. Because obviously, as you say, AI is exploding. It's gone crazy. There's hundreds and hundreds of AI tools out there that obviously at different levels of you know completeness, shall we say, how sophisticated they are, what they're really offering. And those rapid advancements are quite scary in some respects. And some people are fearful, some people embrace it. How do you see these things how do you stay on top of it for starters yourself? And how do you see this changing both consumer behavior and, and business behavior so that their profits are actually crystallized in a better way? Do you know, I wish I had a crystal ball because we are now at the, we're privileged in some ways to be at the next industrial age. And I just don't know where it's going to go. And I was talking to a photographer and his wife today. They've got a very successful photography business, but I don't think they're going to have a very successful photography business for long. And I said, well, you're just going to have to think differently. Stop thinking photograph and start thinking something else that will involve photography. So, for example, I just I said, I'm not being flippant, but maybe you should become a tourist concierge or something like that. So that um, you tourism is something where people who can afford to will always want to have something that they can have a, a great picture portfolio of it. But if you can provide them the experience, but also the fantastic quality pictures, far better than they would do themselves because you've got the eye to sort of see the angles come up, which can be their own pictures because you'll create their own port. There might be a way around it. But I said, just producing photography, already they're seeing just the touching up that goes on with AI. The machines are doing it. They're taking stuff. They're taking pictures already and they're just changing it themselves. So there's even accountancy profession. I've been warning for 20 years, um, my team, the robots are coming. I'm going to take your work. And they've all my team have always laughed because we've always been so busy. And I said, it's happening now. 
Now, so we're seeing the advancement in uh, technology that is doing a lot of the work for us. So we've got fewer team members. We're paying them a lot more. So, uh, but in due course, some of those team members who are doing the less sophisticated work won't have a job. So unless they can find a way of being able to link in with um, within the clients, so there's some sort of personalization, some sort of service, something where people want to deal with them because they enjoy dealing with them, they won't have a job because there's they're not going to offer anything that can't be offered by somebody else. And so somebody will just say, well, I'll just go for the cheapest, cheaper alternative that's going to be doing it very efficiently. So I think the world is just about to change dramatically. But as a result, I think there's going to be jobs created that we don't even know about now. So who would have thought people could earn so much by being an influencer? I mean, for God's sake, what on earth is an influencer? So <laughs> somebody who's actually got a personality and who's uh, engaging with people. And so you've got old influencers. So it doesn't have to be just a young, sprightly, beautiful person. You can have older people who relate to other older people. And they become influencers, whether it's on makeup, whether it's dress, whatever. It's They just got off their backsides and uh, said, right, there's a niche. Let's try it. And because of the power of people being able to search, I think there's businesses that are going to be created that we think, wow, who would have ever thought that that could ever be a business? Absolutely right. You, know, you say there's so much history littered with examples of revolutions that have occurred, but people are still employed. We're not all sat in a, a, a chair with some virtual reality. So you're quite right. I mean, I, I love the quote I saw. It's not mine, um, that we, we won't lose um, our jobs to AI but we'll lose our jobs to people using AI. And I think uh, that's where we, everybody's got to wake up because they're, they're still really, I mean, apart from practicing with chat GBT or whatever, and we're not really embracing it properly. And so I think people are now waking up and thinking, right, how, what can we do? And it needs, it needs a whole team thinking process. So how can we use this? Stop, stop just thinking, well, it's for other people. Uh, it's for everybody, but we've all got to think think differently. Brilliant. Well, it's been brilliant, everything you've said today. Really interesting. Your stories are fabulous. How do people find out more about you, your businesses? You know, Where can they go and seek you out, Mike? Okay, well, I am uh, I work with a firm called X5 Accountants. We're part of a group called the Zenodin Group. So they're a group of small accountancy firms. We're trying to do something different there. So we're trying to keep everything that's good about being small. So in other words, people matter uh, so that people are not just become a number. Uh, but we get everything that's good about being a larger firm because we have um, the services available to us that larger firms do. So that's great. So we're X5 Zenodin Group down in Eastbourne. But the website is x5accountants.com. And uh, anybody who's looking for sort of like speaking or anything like that, so go on to mikeogilvy.com and uh, can see you know online or the advisory work that I do, see see examples of what we do. Brilliant. Well, it's been a wonderful experience. Really enjoyed our podcast tonight. Have a lovely evening and take care. And you, Dave. Lovely to be with you. So there's another real life buyer podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it and it's given you some ideas and inspiration for greater action and achievement. If you are a purchasing or a supply chain professional, business owner or director, come and join my Facebook group, the Purchasing and Supply Chain Community Hub, a safe place to engage with like-minded, friendly people. See you soon. Bye.